You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning, church. Uh, So good to have you here with us again for this week as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, So thankful to the Lord for our our time today. This morning, we'll be looking at Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. Read along with me. And it reads as follows. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes me, uh, one, excuse me, whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck, he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter maimed or lame than to have two, two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you, in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, for the last five weeks or so, my wife and I have um, been watching a 10-part documentary entitled The Last Dance on ESPN. And this uh, documentary chronicles the life of arguably the greatest player to ever play the game of basketball, Michael Jordan, in his last season in the Chicago Bulls uniform. And as a basketball fan, And as one who grew up in the Jordan era, uh, there's no argument from me that he is indeed the greatest basketball player to ever play in the NBA. But you know, while watching this series, two things have really become unmistakably clear to me as I watch this documentary. Number one is this, that Michael Jordan, as I said, is indeed the greatest player uh, to ever play the game. And I know I'm biased, and if you want to argue with me on that, we can do that later on Facebook. But number two is this, is that there is an inordinate amount of sacrifice. There is an inordinate amount of dedication that that is needed in order to be declared as the greatest of all time in anything. You know, two weeks ago, we answered the question, can we trust Jesus? Last week, we examined the question, why submit to Jesus? And consequently, we have seen that Jesus not only can be trusted, but he is also worthy of our submission. He is indeed both our great God and also our sovereign king. So this week, this is the question that we'll discuss together. How do we follow this great Jesus? 
How do we follow this great Jesus? And we'll look at it in this way. We look at it in verses one through four. We follow Jesus by by exhibiting humility. Verse five, we follow Jesus by serving one another. Verses uh, six through nine, we follow Jesus by protecting one another. And then verses 10 through 14, we follow Jesus by encouraging one another. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you for you are a good God and a sovereign King. I pray that you would take my feeble words and you would take my little bit, make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. Hide me behind the cross and allow your gospel to be shown forth. Thank you, God, for allowing us to be involved in the plan that you have to redeem and to replace humanity with a better plan. We give you permission to come into our homes, to come into our lives even now and cause our chaos um, to, to cease before your presence. We, we give you permission, God, um, to reorient and to help us to redefine what greatness really means, even this morning. We give you permission, God, to come before us and allow us to see and to embrace the beauty of becoming like a child in humility before you. God, we, come, we ask that you would do more than we can ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, the first Four verses of Matthew set the stage for the rest of the chapter. Our narrative begins with a simple question. And it says this, this is what the disciples ask. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The question itself seems clear, direct, and innocent. But Matthew prefaced this question with with these specific words in verse one. At that time. See, at that time serves as a bridge to connect what has happened what is, what, what is about to happen? At that time is used in the narrative to connect where this chapter starts and the previous chapter left off. You see, this was a new beginning because the disciples were starting to understand Jesus as being truly the promised Messiah, God's holy son. You see, Jesus had already succeeded where they had failed. Jesus had already taught extensively about his impending death and Jesus had already performed great miracles that no one could explain except by the hand of God himself. This is a good time for us to remember that the disciples are confused and they they are understanding what the Messiah is, but they don't understand how this wonderful Messiah, this great God, could his, his, that how this great God's um, destiny could lead to death and to isolation. So they ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not a coincidence that the disciples asked this question after a failure. You remember last week? They couldn't cast out the demon. They, they were actually um, seen as um, have being in an embarrassing situation. And guess what? The disciples were so embarrassed that they're thinking in their minds, you know what? We'll never let that happen again. So how can we become great instead? Notice, Jesus doesn't condemn them for their confusion. Jesus doesn't even condemn them for their zeal or or even their ambition to want to be great. However, what Jesus does do is he challenged their perspective of what greatness truly entails. I love this because um, it reminds us that the desire for greatness is not the problem here. It's not a sin to desire a life of significance or a life of meaning. But here's the problem. The problem is when we think we have to become something big like God. 
The problem comes when we think we have to do something big like God. And that simply is not the way of Jesus. Look with me in verses one through four. As we look at, we follow Jesus by exhibiting humility. How does Jesus respond to our wayward perspective? He simply calls a child and he puts the child in front of the disciples. Looking at verse two, it says, Jesus calls, notice how Jesus calls a child to serve as an object lesson for his disciples of who is the greatest. Notice four distinct ways that the child responds to Jesus' call. Number one, the child trusted Christ. The the, the child felt free to respond to Jesus' call. There must have been something warm about Jesus for this child to leave whatever they were doing, to come and be set by Jesus and 12 to 13 other men who were surrounding him. It lets us see and let let us know a, a key character about Jesus, that he is trustworthy and that he is warm. One of the things that uh, what struck me last week was as we were talking about this verse with my, my daughter, Naomi, she came to me and she said, you know, dad, you can really tell a lot about a person's character, about how they treat children. I said, you know what, Noah, sweet pea, I call her sweet pea. You know what, sweet pea, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I think you're exactly right. So we can see a lot about Jesus' character and how he, this child responds to Jesus and, and, and trusting him to come forward. Number two, we see how the child surrendered himself to Christ. We see this, that Christ is worthy, that this child was willing to give up whatever he or she was doing to come to Jesus at that very moment. Not only that, but we also see how the child was obedient to Christ, how despite the fear of coming before 12 or 13 men surrounded in in a circle and coming to Jesus in that very moment, that's not an easy thing to do, but the child was obedient despite his or her fear. And lastly, we see that the child was humble before Christ. You see, most little children don't push themselves forward. Most little children, they they prefer to stay in the background and not to be noticed, but this child was called forward by Jesus himself. And and in humility, he or she responds. This is a good reminder for us that we've been teaching all this year that identity precedes function. That the greatest isn't the one who rightly proclaims the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. The greatest isn't the one who witnesses Jesus' transfiguration. The greatest isn't the one who casts out the most destructive demons from someone. No, Jesus teaches in verse 3 the significance of greatness. He says this, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is not measured by what you do, but by who you are. To be a citizen of the kingdom, you must first be a child of the king. And this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is not only pointing them to the necessity of conversion, but he's calling his disciples to a fundamental change of being. I love what Leon Moore says in the gospel according to Jesus' commentary. He says this, the child is weak, small, basically helpless and unimportant in comparison with grownups. It is dependent on others and the younger it is, the more dependent. The objective significance of the child, not any particular characteristic of children, is set forth as the way in which disciples are to think of themselves. 
See, Jesus provides two conditions for greatness within his kingdom. The first condition is found in verse three. It's a, the first condition is um, uh, uh, for greatness is conversion. The meaning of this word or the meaning is that the disciples must turn or they must completely turn around. Turn around from what? You might ask. Turn around from their sins. They, they were possessed by a selfish desire for position, power, prestige, fame, wealth, and worldly pleasure. They were possessed by a fruit, a spirit of pride, envy, ambition, worldliness, jealousy, and even rivalry. This is a good reminder for us, even today, that Jesus desires a total conversion of a person. He desires a, a conversion that is thorough and complete. He desires a conversion of one's heart, one's life, and even one's thoughts. I love how one commentator says about this. It says, it's not merely the simplicity of the child that Jesus has in view. It is even more the fact that he is starting life afresh with no preconceived notions. The saying means much the same as, the, as John in the John chapter 3 when he says, ye must be born again. This is a point of grace for us that Jesus has come to replace our lives and not simply repair them. Jesus came so that we might learn how to die in order to live and not so we might, so we don't live in order to die. Notice with me the second condition of greatness. The first one was conversion. Verse four tells us it's humility. You see, in our household, we have three expectations for our children regarding obedience. We ask them to do three things um, that we often repeat in our household. We want you to obey quickly, cheerfully, and fully. Quickly means to obey right away, as quickly as possible. Cheerfully is to obey with a cheerful heart. And then fully is to obey exactly without detour or deviation. You see, the humility of the child is shown in these three aspects. The child obeyed quickly to Jesus' words. He was not an infant and because he responded so quickly, but he also was not slow. He was diligent in how, how he responded. The child obeyed cheerfully without a pause. He or she was trusting and he or she was humble before Christ. And lastly, the child obeyed fully despite the fear of the crowd. He or she was submissive and obedient to Jesus despite their fears. See, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you desire greatness and good. You're made in God's image. That's right. But now if you truly want to be great, if you want greatness, it won't look like uh, it won't look like the thing you thought it did. For greatness in my kingdom looks like an innocent child. Notice by calling the child, Jesus humbly offers the disciples a new perspective on greatness. And Jesus is also inviting us. He's inviting us to purify our fleshly desires through God-honoring humility. Notice, look with me in verse 5, that we see we follow Jesus by serving one another. In this verse, we see simply that children are always received with ease. There's two realities that we always see concerning children. Children are the most uh, wonderful and easily acceptable and approachable uh, human beings that God has created. <laughs> they are the most approachable beings in God's creation. We are drawn to children because of their innocence. We are drawn because of their generosity that comes out um, of us. When we see children, we just want to give and love and lavish them with attention. Maybe not during 
this epidemic, but normally we do. We are to, but this also reminds us that we are, in the same way, are to receive one another with the same openness and that same generosity. Notice Jesus says here, Jesus says, welcoming a little child is the same as welcoming him. Verse 5. Thus, he, he is saying we are to welcome each other in the same way, like a little child. The term little children here is in reference to not a phys- just a physical child, but to every born again Christian. Every spiritual child that's reborn into the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Jesus has such a harsh warning for those who harm his little children or lead them astray. We're to receive one another as we would a little child. And we need to approach others as little children. There's two characteristics that are um, just, just brought out regarding children. Children are born innocent, but children are also born curious. Innocent, not meaning sinless, but innocent as far as um, just needing to grow and to mature um, into adulthood. You see, children must learn everything. They, they must learn the good of life, but they also must learn the hardships of life. They, they must learn, they don't just come out understanding the differences between races and and between um, prejudices and discrimination. They learn these things. And Jesus himself came to break down walls of prejudice and reunite us as the family of God. Jesus calls us to receive and approach others like children do, to approach them with curiosity, but also to receive them with generosity. Look with me in verses six, six through nine. We see the next the next heading here that we follow Jesus by protecting one another. One thing that's beautiful about Jesus, excuse me, children, is that children have a single-mindedness, that they are intently focused on, on usually one thing. And, and Jesus follows with a list of temptations and how we're to respond. That's pretty intense in verses six through nine. Jesus says, if your hand makes you sin, cut it off. If your eye makes you Sin, cut it out. What is Jesus talking about? This is eerily weird for Jesus to be talking about these things. And I don't want to dilute the weirdness because it is weird. But Jesus is simply exaggerating to make a point. See, children have an incredible capacity to leave something for the sake of something else more beautiful. Parents, you know this well. Children are always looking for the next best thing to do. They're never really satisfied with the thing that's in front of them. I know you've seen this during quarantine. At least I know I have. And if I had $10 for every single time I heard in my household, Dad, I'm so bored. Mom, I have nothing to do. My life is boring. This house is boring. I'm so tired of doing nothing. See, children are single-minded. You see, when a child finds something interesting or beautiful, they are consumed by it. And when they're not find something interesting or beautiful, they're ready to forsake it and to move on to the next best thing. Jesus is inviting us to see the kingdom of heaven as more beautiful, as more desirable than anything or any, anyone else that we can find in this broken world of humanity. It's more valuable than your eye and it's more valuable than your hand. When, when, when something tugs you away, throw it out. Jesus is saying, get obsessed with my kingdom. 
Let your focus be continually there, for there you will find life. And there you will find me. And there you will find the fulfillment of what it means to be the greatest in my kingdom. Now, here's a problem what we're talking about because this is much easier said than done. So here's the question. How do we cultivate this kind of childlike focus? In other words, if the kingdom of heaven is more desirable than anything else, where should our motivation come from? How can we be motivated to truly forsake the broken things of this world and pursue the holy, righteous, and beautiful things of God? He gives us a a quick glimpse of that actually in verses 10. Through 14. Read there with me. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven or heaven, their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than the 99 who didn't go astray. In the same way, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In these verses 10 through 14, we see something that's really, really interesting and very, very particular. We see that children take big risks when they have a big dad. Remember, we said this earlier in Matthew. We talked about this with A.W. Tozer. We said our vision of God determines our pursuit of God. That how we see God matters because how we see him determines how we will pursue him. You see I'm convinced that one of the greatest hurdles many of us must overcome in this life of faith is all the things that our dad was or was not in our lives. You see, few things shape the way we see our heavenly father as our earthly father. And I know some of you, like me, lost your dad young, or you had a dad who maybe didn't love you or protect you well as a child. And if that's the case, I extend my sincere condolences and apologies to you. I'm truly sorry for that mishap in your life. But even so, we must fight to see our heavenly father as he truly is, not as your dad was. You see, some of, the, some of you may need to strain to image a dad who's like the one in the story we just read. Notice Jesus ends his teaching with a story about a shepherd seeking lost sheep. And he does this on purpose as he's trying to tell you something about what your heavenly father is like. In other words, he's telling you that you have a dad. You have a big dad who will come and save and rescue you, regardless if your earthly dad measured up or not to your expectations. Regard your heavenly father is constantly watching you. He's constantly pursuing you. You are, are very precious to him. He's like Liam Nielsen and Taken. God, that is, it's like Liam Nielsen and Taken. He's coming for you to rescue you. I know your earthly father may not have done that for you. But your heavenly father, your father in heaven will never rest in his loving pursuit of you. Now watch all, how all this connects and how this comes together. Jesus is saying, Christian, if you want to be great, first, you must become like a child. Humble yourself. Second, you must be like a child. You must be open and generous to all. 
Thirdly, you must be single-minded. You must be so fixated on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven that everything else pales in comparison. But then fourthly, you must see God rightly. I know some of you wondering, how do I do this? (laughs) How do I do this? Pastor Fields, it sounds so great, but how do I do this? And what if I fail? What if I don't measure up? Some of you may be even thinking right now, that, that just sounds too hard for me. But remember these words. That's you. That's okay. But remember these words. You have a big dad who was ready to find you and to pursue you when you're lost, when you're alone, when you're afraid, and when you're confused. You know, for me personally, I don't have a lot of memories about my dad again because he died when I was nine years old. But there's one memory in particular that I will always have of him that rings true. You see, as a young kid at the age of about three or four, I used to get dropped off pretty much every day at the same place. I went to my cousin's house to be babysitted. My teenage cousin named Charlene used to babysit me in the, um, at her home. And on occasions, sometimes her friends would come by and stop by just to say hi or hang out. But she had one teenage friend that I honestly just did not like, even as a youngster. He always made me scared. He was a very large teenage boy. I don't remember his name, but I think his name was something like Fat Man or something like that. But whatever, but whenever he saw me, he would stare at me and he would cringe his teeth at me and he would look at me and simply say, I'm going to eat you. And as a young boy, I was terrified of him. I was so terrified that when I would, uh, I would often run and lock myself in the bathroom as soon as I heard his voice or even saw his car pull up. One day, without me saying anything to him, my dad noticed my fear and trepidation. And whenever, whenever this young man came around the house, my dad noticed my fear. He noticed me cringing. And without me saying a word to my dad, about the uneasiness and the stress that was going on in my life, my young life. My my dad took the initiative and approached this young boy. I don't know what he said to him, but what I do know is from that day on, when I saw my dad talk to him, all of the taunting and all the teasing and all the bullying stopped. I I don't know what was said. I don't know what was discussed. And to be honest with you, I was still scared but his intimidating mannerism ceased immediately. You see, when you have a big dad, it doesn't mean that you'll never be scared again. It doesn't mean that you'll never be afraid again. It doesn't mean that you'll never worry or have concerns. It doesn't mean that you won't have doubts or you won't have distractions. But having a big dad means when you're afraid, he'll protect you. And when you're lost, he'll find you. And when you are confused, he will lead you. And when you have no strength, he will carry you. See, Jesus is doing everything he's asking us to do already. You see, he's curious with his disciples rather rather than uh, critical, just like a child. He's focused on the kingdom of heaven. He's captivated by its beauty. And he has a singular mission towards going to Jerusalem to suffer on the cross for human sin. He's he's pursuing his little ones and keeping them safe even when they're scared and even when they're confused. See, Jesus knows his father will catch him. 
That's why Hebrews 12, 2 says this, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He took the path of a servant, even though he was the greatest in the universe. He laid down his life for his sheep because he loves them. And he died on the cross for our sins, trusting that the father would vindicate him through his resurrection. It's a good reminder for us as a church that if we learn to run to our father's arms, our big God's arms during our times of fear and trepidation, if we learn to run into his arms enough times, eventually, and soon enough, we'll know that we're safe simply because you're his. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day and this time and this reminder of your goodness towards us. We thank you, God, that you are God who pursues us. You are the God who pursues us in our lostness, God. I pray for all those under the sound of my voice even now, God, that may be confused or afraid. They may be longing to have desires that, to be fulfilled that have been yet to be fulfilled. I pray, God, that they would have the courage today to humble themselves before you and run into your arms as, a, as, your, as your child and you would embrace them and that you would keep them and you would love them. Thank you, God that you loved us so much that you came and died for human sin, sin that you never knew, sin that you've never committed. You died for the guilty, although you were innocent. And God, you raised from the dead. You raised from the dead as an innocent one and you gave those who were guilty your own righteousness. God, how good, you are so good to us and we thank you. I pray that that goodness, that image and picture of Christ would be a motivation enough for us to continue to humble ourselves before you as your children each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, Info about our church and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.